Welcome to another episode of Knife Making Down Under podcast. Uh, so today we'll be recording an episode dedicated on the steel, steel types, and what we like to do. So this is Matt Tansu of Tansu Knives, and we have Corey Nurkart, master of the microphone, who we'll tell you about later, <laughs> and Kevin Slattery of Kev's Lodge. <laughs> Corin, how are you? Yeah, I'm I'm great. I'm great. Yeah, we've just uh, we've just recorded 15 minutes into a podcast before I uh, before I discovered that uh, the microphone was plugged into the wrong hole and we weren't recording. So um, anyway, we'll start again. Um, I'm doing pretty good. The um, uh, sorry, Phil's just walked in. It's all good. We've solved the problem. Phil, Phil, our technical advisor. Yeah, great one, mate. So. Kevin, do you remember? Do you remember at the previous fifteen minutes, Corin was mocking me because of my technical ability? That never happened. I mean, he has a point. Fucking I couldn't get up, my Mert. fucking microphone to working, but anyway, <laughs> let's, let's hey, look, not Mert, split hairs, fellas. All right, I, I so, have to say it, it wasn't just Corin, man. It was me too. We were bagging the shit out of you because, like I said, you're consistently consistent in being inconsistent with your microphone. Well, Maybe this week it was me. My apologies. Anyway, the the, the right. listeners don't give a fuck about our inability to do what we're supposed to do. So, look, <laughs> let's just um let's just move right along. So this week I oh. gave some instruction to a couple of friends of mine that the same as last week. If you listen to that episode, uh, lost their father, lost a father, and I've been teaching them how to make some blacksmithing tools so that they can hopefully walk away with a few tools and get started into forging. Um. Uh, doing the basically the tools to make tools course the other thing i did was heat treat all of my screws that i've been diligently making um for uh for my die filer and they've all been um i heat treated them quenched them all and i have uh lead tempered them because i wanted them to be fairly high tensile strength so i had to get them pretty hot so i used molten lead as the tempering medium so that was my that was my quick snapshot of my week kev uh, my quick snap, snapshot was I ran a course uh, for a couple of good blokes down here in Canberra, Eric and Marty. So, g'day, fellas, if you're listening. Um, funny course, two two fucking crackers of fellas. I just it was in stitches the whole fucking time. Um, so, courses like that, just uh, they're just fantastic. Uh, I've just also been uh, trying to get some shit together for the Canberra show. So, forge out some knives. And the plan is to try and put some handles on some knives in the next couple of days. That's me. So we'll give a shout out for the Canberra Show and the other upcoming event, Knife Camp. Um, Canberra Show is on the first weekend of, of December, on the first Sunday in December. And Knife yep. Camp is run by the Australian Knife Makers Guild. It's like, if you've been to a symposium, if you haven't been to a symposium, get to a symposium as soon as possible. But it's like a hands-on version of the symposium for guild members where you get sort of anywhere between sort of 10 and 15 people and... Uh, They've got the whole Thawa Valley Forge facility there with lots of instruction from some of the very best in the industry, learning how to fit guards, learning about uh, uh, folding knives. Bruce Barnett's doing a thing on folding knives. Ian Stewart's doing a, a course on fitting guards and you, like with practical sessions where you get to actually fit a guard. So, yeah, that, it's a really good event. Oh, and the yeah, cool. Australian Knife Makers Guild Carp Fishing Tournament's on that weekend as well, just by default. Well... I did I did a batch of Hunter Valley Blades knives. I finished nine of them. Hopefully, I'm going to blow them today. And we drove all the way to Picton, near someplace near Picton, to get our new puppy or actually meet our new puppy. And I realized I saw the signs for the Picton and I gave a call to Corin and we stopped by at Corin's place and I got to see the 
picked in Bunnings in person and Corin's massive train collection. And so, and I had my birthday, turned 39 yesterday, getting older but not wiser. So, that's all I had. Most people don't know yeah, I'm into yeah. trains. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right, Bert. You're getting older. Oh, uh, yeah. Thank you. Have you looked at the mirror? Fucking <laughs> <head>. <laughs> I try not to. I didn't realize the I was older says, than Go you. Go away. But... Go away. Yeah. My mirror, mirror on the wall doesn't say much to me. <laughs> All right. Last week we had a question about steel, and who was the question from? Was it from Ash Ash Blades? Uh, let me let me get it up on the old phone here, mate. Uh, it was I think Ash Edwards, maybe uh, Ashley Edwards uh, sent through a question. It was a, it was a question with a series of questions, and we did say last week uh, that's probably going to take up the most part of a podcast. Um, and he's written. For those that, I don't know if we said it last week, got short-term memory issues. Hi, guys. I've got a question for your podcast. I enjoy working with various steels, both high carbon and stainless. Can you please do a rundown on steel types, powdered versus conventional, their applications, and why you choose one over the other? That's not the end of it. Also, can you do a rundown on what steels are suitable for forging and why some aren't? Uh, Doesn't end there. Toughness versus brittleness, (laughs) ease of heat treatment, Cost effectiveness, etc. He thinks this will help out uh, a lot of new makers with this information. Um, and he did say last time, um, thanks to some networking from the Adelaide Knife Show, they're going to do a hammer in, um, which is pretty cool. So uh, let's go up to the top of his question. He enjoys working with various steels, both high carbon and stainless. Um, what my first view of that first part of his thing is. Can I just when interrupt, start, Kevin? When you put, can I just interrupt you can before interrupt you start? All you like. What's that? Yeah. I, I just want to say stop before talking. we start this steel discussion, yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to say there is a whole ton of bullshit and wank involved in the steel uh, for knife making. You'll hear things all the time. People are making a W2 blade with 15 and 20 sides, for example, which is a bad combination. And, and we'll ex- you'll, you'll learn why as we talk. People will say things like, uh, um, you know, that, uh, you know, some steel is high in manganese when actually it's totally not high in manganese. And it, all this sort of stuff is very, very important. And, and what we would like, what I'd like to convey is that we are, we, we know our steels and the ones that we work with. However, you are responsible to take the information that we provide and use it as a diving board to go and find out about what you're doing and make sure that we're right and make sure that anything you read about on the internet is right. Just because it's on the internet and parroted a million times or two million times doesn't make it right. So sorry to interrupt you, Kev, but I just wanted to get no, that don't. out of the way before we start. Yeah, don't be sorry about that, mate. Just I'm like not said, really. Chinese Chinese, yeah, I figured not. Chinese whispers is a thing, you know. Um, you'll hear from one person because they've had a perceived successful attempt at a steal, maybe doing something that's completely fucking weird. Um, they'll go, yep, this is how you work it, and they'll go from there. Then you say perceived success. It's funny because sometimes perceived success is, oh, I made a knife. Like you, you make a statement online, you're saying, oh, you shouldn't be doing this that way, and all of a sudden you get a picture. A friend of mine made the knife out of that. I made the knife out of that. It's fine. It's working good. It's very nice. It's holding the oh, edge yeah. well. That, that's, yeah. that's the perceived success you're competing with. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Nothing about like retainers tonight or about the hardness, the hot spots, cold spots, bad heat treatment, heat treating medium. It's like, oh, I mean, if it's good, there's a picture. Yeah. That's the perceived success. If you can't yeah. measure it, then then there's an issue. All right. And that's the thing. Yeah. Like, there was a guy and that. Measure, let's just say measure it with a degree of accuracy. Yeah. Measure I'll it just with measure a degree it. of accuracy. And you don't necessarily need. The, yeah. You don't need hardness yeah. files. You don't need a hardness tester. There are ways that you can measure the hardness of your edge. Like there's a test called the brass bar bed um, test, yeah. for example, where you deflect uh, the edge of your knife with a brass bar and see if it either chips or if it deflects back again. There's things you can do to measure it. But there's guys out there, and one that comes to mind was the guy making uh, railway spike knives. He's made over 20 and he's not had a problem. It's working fine. Well... Uh, to me, it's like I've made railway spike knives. I've put them under the hardness tester. It's not fine for me. It just doesn't no. work. It doesn't measure properly. So that's no. my my take on it, Kev. But he, but no, he made it 20 knives, What's that? But he made 20 knives. But he made 20 of them. Yeah, he made 20, so it must be right, right? As if volume yeah. of... Yeah. You could do something wrong 20 times and it's still wrong. I mean, not saying that making knives out of railway spikes is wrong, but if you go out there and say that they work as good as a, a high-quality knife, that's wrong, all right? You can make one every day of the week. It'll cut wedding cake and never lose its edge. I mean, they are sensational at cutting cake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I was just, before I got rudely fucking interrupted... And, and I'll do it again now because I've got more to say, oh. Kev. <laughs> Stop interrupting while I'm talking. Stop talking while I'm interrupting. <laughs> this is going to go on forever. But I was going to say, when they say, when it gets someone, I'm not sure of Ashley Edwards' background in knife making, so I'm not casting judgment at Ashley. I'm just saying, when I get people that say, oh, I enjoy working with all these different steels, um, I, I first off go, I get a bit of a little tingle of worry because you think, well, how long have you been making knives and, and how many knives have you made with each particular steel to dial in those particular processes? Um, Again, Ashley, thank you for the question, but this is not directed at you. It's a generalisation that um, one of the things you see out there is that people go uh, jump on the train and they, you know, they might come and do a course with me. And I use 1075 or 1084, whichever's in the pile at the time, and we forge it. And I explain to people that it's it's a. I don't even like saying it's a good beginner steel because it's a good steel in general, but as a beginner, it's easy to forge. It's got a relatively straightforward process for doing your um, heat treating, including normalization and uh, annealing and stuff. And the, the end result with pretty straightforward equipment is that you can produce a really good quality working knife from high carbon steel like 1084 and 1075. Why is it that 1084 and 1075 are so good? Do you want me to get technical on this? It's well, that's what we're saying as well. It's like you can, get, you can go and get technical and look at the ins and outs of it all. But if you want to just sort of understand, you know, it's a good steel. If, you, if you're starting out and you've got basic equipment, you can get measurable, repeatable success from that steel. So that's, that's and the not, start. And you say, but then you say, then these people, or not all these people, I shouldn't say these people, people then will go out and their mate, like we just say before, will say, oh, 1084, that's shit. That's shit. That's just high carbon steel, that shit. You should use X steel. And then oh, that person then goes... Or 1095. Yeah. 1095 yeah, is a different kettle of fish. 1095. I done the same yeah, mistake. Yeah. Because that 11, that 0.11% carbon is going to make your manhood bigger. 
it's going to be harder. It's, you're going to have a bigger dick or something because that's 0.11% higher carbon. I think the that's easiest the way thing. to describe it, right, is that there is a perfect ratio. It's like making concrete, right? There's a perfect ratio of putting sand, aggregate, and concrete into a pile and mixing it up with water. And if you have that ratio perfect, it's going to be right. Now, you can, you can play with all the other ingredients and it might have a better or worse effect. But if you have that perfect ratio, why fuck with it? And the thing is, you can only, when you're making martensite, when you're taking steel and turning it into, into its hard form martensite, you need exactly the right amount of car- carbon and exactly the right amount of iron to get optimum results. And that percentage is a, between about 0.75 to about 0.85 of carbon to iron. And so that's, that's the, basically what we refer to as a, it is what we refer to as a eutectoid steel. When you hear the terms hyper and hypoeutectoid, it's talking about the percentage of carbon. Hypereutectoid being having more than 0.85% or 0.75 in that range down to um, hypoeutectoid, which has less carbon. And so this is the perfect point. Actually, 1084 and 1075 is like 90% of the best steel you can get. It's 90% of the best steel you can get. In terms of, you know, basically if you're looking from soft through to maximum, maximum, the maximum you can achieve. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And in fact, it's uh, it's used by all the best knife makers making Damascus. Not all, just about all the best knife makers using Damascus. But that's why. It's the perfect <laughs> ratio. Yeah. And like I said, um, I find it funny because, you know, you guys go, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's just a beginner steal. Um, and you go, there's like a stack of US, well, those in Australia that do it as well. Sean McIntyre, I've seen him do knives in 1075 and 1084. Um, people from the guys in the US make 1080. They, they tend to call it 1080 over there. They use 1080 to make heaps of hunters. These are masters of their trade and they're using that steel. So like I said, when I tell people, I try not to say it's a beginner steel. I just say it's a steel that is, um, is good for beginners to use because it, it can be uh, like I said, heart, heat treated and um, worked quite easily. It's a bloody great steel. Um, yep, absolutely. But that, having said that, like I said, I've made knives now for um, quite a number of years and I use predominantly that 1075 to 1084 range and W2. And the, they're the two steels that I've used like, the most and then the two steels that I know when I'm going to go and have a go at making this knife, I'm really comfortable that I'm going to get the result that I want, which is a knife at a specific hardness. Um, and I can believe that with the processes that I do, that internally that grain structure um, and everything in that steel is going to be um, yeah, close to the best that it can be with with me working it. Um, like I said, there's, there's that thing where... You know, your mate tells you, or someone you admire tells you a certain steel is the best. You've got to use this steel. So you jump on board the bandwagon, have a couple of goes at it, might not work, and then you're looking for that next steel. So you're looking and looking. You're always looking. You're not working on a steel long enough to understand it before you're moving on to the next steel and singing its praises. It's like, you know, uh, classic is when Nitro V came out. Uh, We all jumped on, well, a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon for Nitro V. 
Um, I did as well. I bought some steel. I, I did the heat treat process according to the manufacturer's directions. And I've got some really cool knives out of it. They're, they're beautiful, um, work really well. Uh, some clown on uh, YouTube puts up a post how he's water quenched uh, Nitro V, smashes a few things with the knife he's made, and then everyone goes, oh, cool, it's a water quenching steel that I can work in my forge. And, uh, you know, this is where you get that thing about what you say before, misinformation. Uh, a thousand likes or whatever on a YouTube clip doesn't mean that dude's doing it right. Not uh, at all. Not at all. Yes. Do we want to get into so, the depths of what those numbers mean, 1084 and W2? Yeah, and, yeah, and let's, let, let, yeah, for sure. Let's start on that because a lot of people just think that these um, numbers and letters, are, you know, that, that's just the steel name. Like there's no rhyme or reason for it. So if you want to have a crack at that, Corin? Yeah, sure. So there's basically, if you look at it, um, in, in basic terms, there's several different types of nomenclature or, or names that are used for steel. So there's a, a name for a steel in Europe, could be different to the name in the USA, which could be different to the name from a certain specific manufacturer somewhere in the world. So, but generally we in knife making, generally in Australia, we're talking in American designations, which are SAE designations or Society of Automotive Engineers. Um, there's also um, ANSI and others. But anyway, when we're talking about a simple carbon steel, we're talking about steel, iron and carbon. Like I said, it's a 10 series steel. So people say 1075, 1045, 1084. The last two digits is the number of points of carbon. So 1084, 0.84 points of carbon, 1045, 0.45 points of carbon. That's pretty simple. But that 10 can change. For example, if we have a molybdenum steel, that would be designation 41. And you can find lists of these designations on Wikipedia. If you Google um, steel composition steel types, you'll find these lists. And so you'll find 4140, for example, which is 41 denoting that it's got molybdenum and other things in it, and 40 denoting the points of carbon. What's really important here is that 10 series steel can contain an alloying element called manganese. Manganese is, is important because it changes the way that the steel will harden. It makes it the steel need a slower quench. Now, if you imagine a large block of steel going into a fast quenching like water, the outside cools really quickly and the inside cools very slowly. What manganese does is it allows the inside to cool uh, to harden even though it's cooling slowly. And so we call it a through hardening steel. <coughs> if you're trying to get a, a harmon on a steel, you don't want a through hardening steel. You want a shallow hardening steel where the clay is going to re retard the hardening just enough to keep it soft. And the, and the non-clayed area will, will still harden. So, you know, it's important to know what these alloying elements do. And it's important to know that in 10 series steel, typically it, it, all the low end 10 series, 10 series steel have got a reasonable amount of manganese. Uh, 1095 is an exception where you'll find it has very little manganese, which is why 1095 requires a faster quench, typically depending on the composition of your 1095, but typically requires a faster quench to get a good, uh, a good heat treat. And, and, you know, it comes back to knowing your steel, Kev. If you don't know your steel, if you don't know what its composition is, it's very hard to get the, the, the results that you're looking for. So we've got alloy steels, which are those ones. 5160 is a high chromium 
uh, high chromium spring steel uh, for 51 denotes that it's a chromium steel 50, and the 60 denotes 0.6 points of carbon. The chromium has the same effect as manganese. It also increases toughness, but it, it, it is a through hardening steel. So it hardens with an oil quench. It doesn't need a fast quench. Your WOAL series, so that's O1, A2, L6, W2, um, these steels, M series, th those steels are what's called tool steels. Those steels uh, basically, for example, there'll be O1, O2, O3, which are different, um, different oil quench steels. So the O stands for oil quench. Sorry, I'm getting tripped over a bit here. W stands for water quench, um, A stands for air quench, L stands for lower alloy tool steel, D2 is die steel, stands for die, uh, and you know there's a whole bunch of, of the letter designation ones that all have a, they're made for a specific application. What's critical though for knives is that we deal in thin sections. And dealing in thin sections means that our stuff quenches very fast compared to what industry would, industrial standards, where they're normally talking an, in, an inch or 25 millimetres or thicker, our stuff will quench very fast. If you take a W series water quench steel and stick it in water, uh, what's going to happen, Kev? <laughs> uh, well, you'll either have success and you'll get a really cool heat treat, most likely with an awesome come on, or you will end up with a blade that snaps in several places. Ting. Ting. The, the dreaded ting. So that's a big issue. So water quench steels are very low alloy in in uh, in the through hardening in the through hardening um, alloying elements like chromium and manganese. Um, but high high in uh, in other alloying elements that produce different characteristics. All right, that's basically a rundown of. Uh, of steels and, and basically what the numbers stand for, uh, depending on the system of num like if you're talking something like a Sandvik steel, 12C27, 13C26, those are examples of steels that are named by the manufacturer and um, do not relate to to the same sort of naming principles as the American steels. But generally, that's how it works. Yeah. So I would suggest that people hit the skip back button about three or four minutes there and listen to what Corin just said again, because that is probably one of the best rundowns I've heard uh, in knowing your steels up front, what you're going to get yourself into. So seriously, go back and have another listen and then, and then catch up. And when you get back to this point, ignore the advice to go back and listen, because otherwise you'll just keep listening to that three minutes. This <laughs> 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 is like coffee is hot. It might hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, but what's your success rate generally? Generally, um, on water quenching a W two chef knife that you make. Let's go for one of your bigger ones. Oh, uh, look, like, I've done a few water quenches. Okay, I had some successes. I had also a lot of failures. But when I make a ten ninety five, let's say, and it's a semi, I do straight water quench because. What happens is, by the time I quench the steel, my blade at the spine is five, six millimeters thick. Okay, it's an on-ground knife. If I was to use oil, you all of a sudden start getting something called as autohamon. Okay, because of the thickness of the spine, it doesn't fully harden, and you get like a little semi-line 
where your cladding is and right above it, it doesn't hurt any further. So as Corinne was saying, a lot of the stuff we do is like a lot of the industry information is about the 25 millimeters. Let's when you do a knife that's stock removable three millimeters, yeah, you don't have to do it. But when I was quenching five, six millimeter thickness billets, they weren't getting too hardened. So that's what I was doing, water quenching. With them ones, with the semi, with the um, softer cladding, I've done a lot of water quench. Probably out of 50 or 60, I only lost one. But they were for semi knives. They were thicker. Yeah. Okay, I tried a lot of water quenching other steels too. And some stuff came out good. Some, time, some stuff was like horrible. The issue with the, the myth with the water quenching starts from here. A lot of the guys see Japanese make, makers quenching water. They, they quench in water. It's the way to go. We must quench in water. Okay, but when you also watch the videos of them, sometimes they pull the blade out. Okay, they wait. They count till three or four, then water quench. Okay, so what we have here is we have oils that can, they have a, faster or cooler cooling rates okay so example a japanese guy takes the steel out he counts till six or four or five whatever he quenches in water okay instead of doing that you can that means they have a steel that is slower quench like a 52 100 or maybe like a tool steel like o1 so instead of taking the steel out counting seconds you can use g quench you can use a slower quenching so you still get the full hardness, but you're still not dealing with the harsh effects of the water. Or let's say you're doing a you're doing a 1095, you can do K quench. K quench will get as hard as water without the breaking. You have something to point add? Yeah, look, just on, on if you look at the history of Japanese steel making and Tamahagane and so forth, they weren't alloying their steel. They were simply melting iron with carbon. So they get carbon and iron very pure so there would be no chromium no manganese and nothing that would cause through hardening which is another reason why traditionally all of their steels are very low alloy and will take a water quench pretty much nothing that we sell these days has such a little amount of um of of alloying element and and you know you wouldn't be able to harden those steels effectively in a g quench for example or in a, in a standard quench oil you need to quench them in water yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I see videos. I see videos of uh, like Japanese guys quenching stainless steel in the water. Okay, but again, the guy takes the steel out of the forge, waits ten seconds, then quenches in water. Yeah, and so then removes it from the water. Do they interrupt the quench, Mert? Do they interrupt the quench? Like no. go into the water, pull it out? No. no. The katana they do, but with the kitchen knives, a lot of the videos I've seen, the guy pulls it out of the out of the fire, waits that you can see almost recalcitrance, then they quench it. That's fucking bizarre. Can I just say yeah. that? That wouldn't be how I would heat treat a stainless steel. Stainless steels, by definition, have over 12% um, chromium. It's thereabouts anyway. And that chromium or, massively increases. This is how it's been hard. done hundreds of years ago. No, they That's didn't use stainless steel hundreds of years ago, you fuck knuckle. No. I know, <laughs> I know. That, fucking That's the fucking myth, man. Yeah, That's no, no, fair enough. Look, I'm just putting it out there for anybody that wants to quench a stainless steel in, 
in it comes back to what I said before. It comes back to that chromium being through hardening. Uh, most stainless steels, if you can, some you can get away with an oil quench depending on their carbon content and chromium content, but most re, will go much better with a plate quench or an air quench, which is much slower. Yeah. Hey, Matt, do you want to, um, because that's an interesting topic we're going on with, um, and Cora mentioned it as well, the interrupted quench, do you want to explain a bit more about that? Okay, so interrupted quench. What you're doing is, let's say you're trying what, to get uh, a hormone. What was that? With the interrupted quench, let's say you're trying to have a knife that has a hammer on it. What are you smiling, Ken? Because <laughs> I was just interrupting you through the interrupted quench thing. There's a reason I call you dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason I love. There's a reason I love you, man. <laughs> continue. No, continue. Anyway, interrupted quench. Let's say you have a steel that has a very low in manganese, and you have a hard time hardening it. Okay or you're trying to get a good hamon, good activity in the hamon, okay? You, either way, you can do it two ways. You can do it oil, oil, or you can do first water, then oil, okay? I was working with a, a specific steel from Germany, had pretty much like very low in manganese, and I had a hard time hardening it. I was going to K-Quench, it wasn't uh, hardening it. I was playing my temperature. So what I done was uh, I made sure my oil, my quenching oil and my water at the same temperature, I went in the water and I count to four. You take it out, you go in the oil. Okay, so water is your first quenching. It takes down the temperature, but to make things safe, you go in the oil. Okay, you can do it that way. That's the first one. That will, that will yield a lot of good looking hormones, but with some uh, breakage. The other interrupted quench is you go in the oil, count whatever you count in, like three, four, then you pull out and you go one more time in. Yeah. So what sort of pause, what sort of pause would you have in between, like an oil oil quench? So uh, you say look, in I one, done, two, three, I four. I haven't done many out. oils. To be yeah. honest, I haven't done many oil to oil interrupted quenches. All the yeah. interrupted quenches I done were to get a hamon or trying to make sure my blade was getting truly hardened. With them ones, I was counting till four. Four water, in the oil then. Yeah, water straight to oil. Yeah. Okay. But again. Again, what happens is, as Corin was earlier saying, you want to only put 75 to 85, 0.85% carbon, okay? If you're, if you're water quenching anything, if you want to go crazy, let's say, I want to water quench something, you have to change your temperatures, okay? You have to go on a lot lower temperature because all of a sudden, because all of a sudden you're introducing more carbon and the blade hardens and harden inside, it increases in volume and starts breaking in the breaking the blade especially if you if your sections are like um if it's full flat bar maybe not so much but if you ground your bevels in definitely so if you're if you're thinking about doing a water crunch you have to decrease your temperature a little bit go on the first if you want to go crazy go water then oil but just use a proper oil k quench will get the results 99 percent and i even in, tried the aqua stuff Yep. Yeah. I think with that one, yeah, with that one, I don't know if he was bothered going in the, uh, in the water. Well, no, I wouldn't. The, the science behind the interrupted quench comes back to an understanding of, uh, of a particular graph that's available for, for just about every steel called a TTT graph or a time temperature transformation graph. And what that graph is, is for, for people that aren't aware, it's um, the time it takes basically to form martensite, perlite, 
bainite and the different different phases of steel as temperature changes. I know this is this is a really difficult concept, but basically, if we cool steel quick enough, we beat the nose of the time temperature transformation and we can go straight down a martin site but if we do that there's a lot of stresses imposed on the steel all we really need to do is quench fast enough to beat the nose of the graph and, and you need to read up on this and see what the graph looks like but it looks like a nose and by beating the nose we might only have to cool to 500 degrees celsius or 400 degrees celsius and we're almost safe from forming anything other than martensite, we can then slow the cooling rate right down and still convert the blade to martensite, but do it slowly and with far less stresses. And that's where the interrupted quench can really um, pay its weight in gold. Yeah, cool. Nice. Hmm. That was, that was a, uh, I think for, well, beginners and more experienced makers alike, that's a pretty good rundown of, um, yeah, do you want to cover Hamon? I mentioned I mentioned slightly about you do a lot of the W two blades in Hamon. Do you want to cover it a little bit? Yeah, look, um, the Hamon process. Uh, I, I got my first lot of advice um, from Sean McIntyre. So you know, had a master smith come up. And one of Sean's the key thing. Do you want to explain like what it is for blade. people who don't know what it is? With a Hamon. Yeah. So if you see if you see one of the blades, uh, and uh, I guess the Japanese ones are a, a particular example, and you have your wavy, wavy, uh, wispy, cloudy sort of look up on the top end of the blade, and your hardened, clear sort of hardened end, depending on how the blade's finished, um, the top area which is the been cooled slower, um, and is a little softer, um, and has that waviness to it is called the hamon. So. Um, you can get various degrees of pattern out of it. Um, same as Mer was saying, you can get things like called an auto hamon. So you quench your blade without any uh, addition of anything like clay or whatnot. And you get an auto hamon, which is generated just by the um, vapor lock process on your blades and the cooling down of that. Or you can use products like refractory agents like Satanite, for example, um, and apply a clay layer to the top of your blade. And then when you quench, as say in the correct medium, being K quench, aqua quench, or water, um, you will most likely get a hamon out of it. And when I say most likely, one of the things that Sean said was uh, hamons can be a soul destroying process. You can nail it and get exactly what you're after pattern wise, and then all of a sudden you do the same, repeat the same processes, and you get nothing or you get something completely bizarre runs right down edge to the edge of the blade all these different things so i have done a lot of knives in w2 a lot of hunting knives predominantly i've done some kitchen knives um, which have come out pretty cool with hamons on them and my technique is to uh, i apply a reasonably light layer of the refractory agent um, i'll generally do it uh, so uh, my starting process is i'll apply the clay diagonally across the Ricasso, um, a reasonable distance from the edge of the blade, because I don't want that hamon to drop down lower and have that too soft near the near the edge. I then just apply. I use I use a skewer, pointy end of a skewer, and I apply a light layer of fairly watered down um, satanite. So it's if you ever do cooking, it's somewhere between pancake mixture and muffin mixture is. The consistency that I go for with my Satanite. So I put it on, 
Um, I then bake it. So I, I then put my knife with the hamon, uh, with the safe knife on there into my little tempering oven and I bake it for about half an hour at about 150 degrees. And I find that that for me has increased getting better results because it's bonding that safe knife to your blade rather than sometimes what I found uh, in the past was I'd just heat it up in the forge to, to harden that safe knife and not realise that it was actually peeling off underneath the blade. So the clay would appear to be on the blade, but there would be that micro layer between it. So when you quench, the clay pops off and you don't get any activity at all. So yeah, I've baked that's a, the- That's a problem. Yeah, and, it, and it, I've talked to a couple of people about that when they've sent me things going, oh, you know, I've done this method, I just can't seem to get it, not getting any activity, or I get a really small amount down on the Ricasso. Um, and I said, oh, have you tried, you know, baking it on there? You can use a um, one of those fucking burners from Bunnings, gas burners and, and cook it on, but I prefer just to stick it in the oven, a peace of mind. Um, and then, yeah, I, I will sometimes use, I, I actually now vary between the two, uh, between my gas forge and my um, Paragon kiln for heating up. Um, I find that I'm more consistent now, obviously using the kiln because I can control that temperature, you know, better. I put my knife in there. I like to heat, I like to quench uh, at the lower end of the spectrum. So I do 800, I chuck 805 degrees on my um, Paragon. And I generally chuck two knives in there at a time, bring one out. When it gets to 805, I let it soak for, you know, maybe five minutes or so. Again, when we're talking about soak times, remember we're dealing with 3.5 mil or four mil thick steel. Um, bring it out, quench it straight into, uh, I use, uh, predominantly use the K quench, although recently uh, I did some testing and I've been using the Aqua quench on knives as well. Um, so out into the K quench and I don't do an interrupted quench on mine. I just, you know, jiggle it around back and forth um, and then bring it out and hope for the best that um, that generally you'll see the the false hormone. So you'll see where your clay was applied and you go, beauty, what a fucking awesome hormone this is going to have. And then when you start grinding, post heat trick grinding and, and sanding your blade, you get a better indication of where your hormone is going to be but it's not up until the point where um, you etch it in, say, ferric chloride, uh, that you'll actually see whether you've got good activity or not. So then moving forward to that process, so I'll take my blades up to, um, I normally go up to 600 grit as my final finish for a using hunter. Um, and then I go to the ferric, warm, make sure the ferric's been out in the sun for a while, warm it up, dip, I bring mine up and I use a sponge and a, and a, um, mild abrasive cleaner. I don't use steel wool because I found steel wool uh, and this was something that I talked to a very prominent maker, Will Morrison about. Um, his, his idea, which I'll go with, is that steel wool, when you're rubbing, uh, will sort of burnish your steel. Using an abrasive like um, Jif, you use abrasive and a sponge and that will like wipe that oxide off uh, in, in my view, in his view, a lot better. And then I do that rinse and repeat, do that process with, uh, you know, into the ferric for, swish it around until it's black. It's not going to go any further that way. Bring it out, clean it off. Neutralise it, jiff it, 
go again, clean it up, go again. And I do that process anywhere from three to 10 times, depending on how that hormon looks for me. Once I've done that, you then can go to either making it a polished hormon where you see the ashi, which is the white wispiness. You can polish your blade higher and, and go through that process again and get that ashy line. Or if you're like me, I like having that darkest, that contrast between dark and light. And I use um, silicon carbide powder and oil after I've done my blade. And same thing, use this clean sponge and then wipe the silicon carbide powder on there and, and use that to burnish or buff. And it usually leaves the darker, more pronounced um, online. Have you ever tried polishing with pumice? I believe that was a traditional way of doing it and I've heard people doing it. I've never tried it. I've not tried it, but I think Unky Keith, Unky Keith uses stones, doesn't he? Do Hashtag Unky Keith, yep. Hashtag Unky Keith. I'm pretty sure Keith um, has done that. He's Keith, Keith I saw, Flutter. I saw pumice. I, saw, I know a couple of guys, they use it. They swear by it. Yeah, Keith Flutter, if you want to have a look at someone that has pretty freaking awesome hormones, um, he's one to look at as well. There's a guy on Instagram that I got put onto that you have to go and check out, and that's Jan. Your Nafinek. Yeah. Your Nafinek. Man, Your that guy Nafinek. is Customers. fucking next level, man. I've been I trying to get, him. I've been trying to get, um, get the stuff he uses in Australia for a while, and I just. Oh yeah. yeah I asked him. I said, "Oh, what steel are you using, man?" Because it can't be W two, and he came back and told me what it was. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, I've got it written down too. I've, I've yeah, contacted a whole bunch of you ten. G-O-S-T-T, oh, yeah, that's it. 10 yeah. or something. Uh, his stuff, his stuff is mind-blowing. Holy shit. He can get harmons that look like skulls. It's so skulls, fucking cool. Skulls, skulls and crosses and stuff. Fucking, fucking unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah. So you go yeah. and have a look. I've, been, I've, actually, have a look. I've actually used an interpreter to try and get the steel from Russia, but fuck, I don't know if it's the steel or the man. I'm really not sure because sometimes he says 1095, sometimes he says W2. Sometimes he says it's this Russian steel. If you read his, um, if you read what he's saying, and it's like whatever he's using, bloody hell, it's incredible. Yeah, so I think he's quenching in vodka. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret get, recipe. Get your pens um, out if you if you're not if you're not following him. Get your pens out and write down his at J A N H A F I N. E C K N I V E S. So Jan Huppenek knives. Um, go and have a look just at his latest ones. They're freaking unbelievable. Like, but man. please, please don't do it if you made the hamon and if you're happy about it, don't do it right after that because you might think like, yeah, I have a hamon, I have a little line, and you might look at this skulls and you might like, I'm shit, I don't know nothing. So yeah, his stuff. Give it discretion, be advised. Yeah, holy shit, man. I was just having a quick look at his stuff, and now I'm just, like, feeling shit. Yeah, he's, Kev, he's incredible. <laughs> so I was saying, like, Kev, when you said about the hamon, Talk up, one thing I do is, as soon as I quench my steel, as soon as I quench my blade, while the knife is still warm, I go on a grinder on a very fine belt, let's say, like, 400. Yep. I'm trying to get rid of the decarb, see if I can get where the hamon is. Because when you go by the where the clay looked, and you scrape it and uh, yeah that that must be it you don't rely on it while you're no, absolutely not go on the grinder touch up even on 120 grit or something you don't want to grind the knife you want to get rid of the outside oxides and the yeah. decal so you can see where the hormone is looking if it's looking good go straight on and temper it if not 
you can still reapply and have another go at it. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. Because you, um, I think Pierre Mefflin was one guy that just posted up a photo of one of his knives. The exact same thing I was telling you. When it comes out of quench and you, and you wipe off that clay, and you're like, yeah, cool. I've got this awesome Hamon. And then you realize it's traveled three quarters of the way down the blade uh, in a blob-like structure. Um, and then you go, shit. So it's a trial and error process. And when you get it, when you start getting what you're after or close to what you're after, repeat that process because you'll, you'll have that mixture between fucking awesome and I don't know whether to reheat treat, treat that um, on your blades. Now, when we go to Satanite, uh, one of these guys that I read the other day that was trying to get the Hamon out of 1084 using Satanite, and they're like, oh, what a waste of Satanite. Um, Satanite, I've discovered after throwing a lot of it away, is once you mix up your Satanite and you have your little uh, you know, container with it in there, don't mix it up and throw it away. Mix it up, let it dry, and then the next time you do a Hamon, drop a few bits of water in there and remix it up yep. and you can reapply that stuff. Uh, I, I went through about three quarters of my first bag of Satanite, chucking it away each time and then went, oh shit, uh, you can just add water. It's not, do you it's remember not, the bag you sent me, Not Kev? concrete. Yeah. Do you, remember, do you remember the bag you sent me a few years ago? Like yeah. four years ago or something? Sounds I finished like that. that bag. I finished that bag maybe like six months ago. Wow. Certainly. Yeah. It certainly goes goes for a long way that's for sure yeah and that's just me like then 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 you like i said if you're going to do it invest your time in it and and make a lot of make a lot of them get w2 or 1095 as you get the right steel get the w2 or 1095 stick with one or the other and, and make a fucking lot of knives out of it and get it so you can start getting repeatable results and then move on it, it's a it, you know you go invest some time in it don't have two cracks at it and and then go oh this is shit if you don't get it or don't have two cracks at it and then go i'm an expert because you've got uh nice hum on out of the first two times you've done it chances are somewhere along the way you're going to have misery uh in your results can we go back to the viewer question and get back on to um making sure we're answering it what, what was right. let's yeah, go again look, i think i think that was a good part of it. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. But, you know, as you said, this is probably going to go over a couple of episodes. So, uh, enjoys working with various steels, both high carbon stainless. You're um, going through the range of numbers, letters, etc., to tell people what steels are. Very good for that. Um, steel types, powdered versus conventional. Well, oh, do you want to talk about that? On, well, he said, yeah, he said a rundown of steel types, comma, powdered versus conventional, comma, so you did a rundown on steel types for a lot of the ones with the high chromium pull steels, yeah, carbon steels. Yeah, I kind of did, but powdered versus conventional we didn't talk no, about. So hey, I can now if we look if at powdered, like. yeah, now if we look at powdered versus conventional, that's a good topic because we've got um, some really nice um, steels available in both forms. So we can talk about how they're made, all right? So if we start off with um, we start off with very basic steels that were made in times gone past. It was done through a method called a bloomery furnace. Now, Mert can probably talk about that better than I, in as much as Mert's done it. Um, but um, basically what happens in a bloomery furnace is you put the ore, the iron ore, not iron ore, something else. It needs to be iron ore uh, with, uh, with a carbon burning compound like charcoal or coal. 
and then using blast or, or air, you heat that up to the right temperature and basically all the iron melts and, and starts to, it doesn't really melt so much as <coughs> sort of slumps together. Is that a good way of describing it, Mert? Yeah, I think it's more like valves. So what happens is yeah. you end up getting a slag. Slag is the shit that you don't want, the silica and all that. They start forming like a forming like a, a molten glass and they start flowing and all the other iron particles along with the charcoal and stuff. They start like welding to each other under the weight of them. And so you end up with a pile with the bloom. And depending on the iron ore content, all that, you range from raw iron to low carbon steel to high carbon steel. Okay, that's the old method of doing it, and it was quite inefficient. Then, and with the industry before industrial revolution, mm. we start making steel in a bigger batch. Well, yeah, that after, was, when it became possible to melt the large batches of steel, and then they were able to control the content of the steel using the, what's called the Bessemer process. Where they basically burned all burn all of the impurities out of the steel to get back to a raw iron before they add the alloying compounds, which means they they started to have control over what was in the steel. With a bloom, you don't have any control, do you? Now the bloom is pretty much like you you roasting something in the pit fire, and the best method is more like you making a soup. You're making a steel soup. You're adding things. You're skimming yep. the top, getting it off the crap. Yeah. Yeah, and it's quite a violent process too, burning out the impurities. Quite spectacular. If you see the accidents, Corn, I don't know if you saw it. There's a Instagram website that shows the industrial accidents. There was one. One of those giant cauldrons holding that molten steel falls, and whole shit goes like, bursts like, and oh, it's it's bad. Uh, yeah, you're not going to clean that up with a mop and bucket. <laughs> <laughs> so. So that's a Bessemer furnace. So most of the steels that we sell nowadays are made using a Bessemer process. But what was discovered a long time ago was that they could control the steel that they made uh, by using a crucible. And so they put basically the iron into a crucible and then they'd put some carbon and, and other materials in and alloy it. And that's how the original Damascus steels or Woot steels were made through that process. A powdered metallurgy steel is just a highly advanced version of that, or a crucible steel. What they do is they take um, powdered elements, very finely powdered, mix them in exactly the right ratios as dust in a crucible. They then put them in a crucible, seal the lid to prevent air getting in there, and they heat it up and melt it all together. And that's a very basic example of what a crucible steel is as opposed to a Bessemer steel. Mostly what you're buying is Bessemer steel, but those crucible steels are very clean steels refined very highly refined and very tightly controlled um, alloying element contents so a, a powdered steel is basically one that's and you're going to pay more for it because they can only make a small batch like the crucibles are only so big they have to get to a certain temperature a bessemer a bessemer furnace is a massive a massive deal they can make many 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 tons at a time but um, with crucible they are limited into in the amount of tonnage that they can do in one in one smelt so you'll pay more for it is there much is there much demand for crucible high grade steel other than the cutlery industry? You, look, I can't speak outside the cutlery industry, but I will say this: there are very few steels available in Australia yeah. uh, for manufacturing that are, are true crucible steels outside of what we do for the cutlery industry. Like you're not yeah. going to find dice die makers don't use it. 
Uh, Toolmakers very rarely use it. Um, it's just it's just too high end, you know, too specialized. And and that's where we come back to aerospace, steel. Aerospace maybe. What's that? Maybe aerospace. Maybe maybe aerospace yeah. might. Aerospace be might, but mate, how much aerospace is in Australia? Like we've got seventy two attack aircraft in our fucking air force. Like that is our air force. Like really. Anyway, there we go. Like also price of it. Like for example, what's the average price of a crucible steel per meter versus four forty C? One hundred to three hundred dollars depends on the size. One hundred to three hundred dollars a meter versus thirty dollars. You know, yeah. example. Yeah. Um, depending on which one, they, they get very expensive. And mostly, mostly they're stainless steels. Some of them are higher carbon, but mostly stainless steels. Because by the time you're talking crucible steels, if you're going to pay that amount, you may as well have something that holds an edge and doesn't rust. So, you, you know, your RWL 34s, your CPM 154s, your any of the CPM steels, which is crucible powdered metallurgy, CPM. Um, and um, your RWLs. And then you've got other ones from Bowler and stuff, which are very hard to find in Australia, like LMAX. But... Uh, you know, there's there's equivalents available. Dharma steel, Dharma steel is RWL34 and another crucible steel PMC27. I don't know, something like that. Um, so uh, powder metallurgy PMC RWL stands for RW Loveless, and I don't know PMC is probably powder metallurgy crucible, but who knows? I don't. Um, anyway, that that that's pretty much the basic difference. You're going to pay a lot more for powder metallurgy steels. Are you going to forge a powder metallurgy steel? You can. Mm -hmm. You, you, you can. Because you have I big kahunas, my can. friend. Yeah. You shouldn't say you can. You should say I can. No, uh, I don't want to sound like a dickhead. <laughs> I don't feel you. No, no. You can I do it. All... You can do it. Yeah. Like the So the way I forged it was because the first time I ordered Super Gold 2, which is made by Takefu in Japan, it's a... Uh, powder manager steel too and i ordered the wrong size because our friends in the u.s are the only country still using inches and quarters of something instead of millimeters i'm not going to go deep into that so i got the wrong one so i ended up forging it when you forge stainless steel you have a lot shorter working window and you cannot just like oh let me go higher the second you go higher shit starts crumbling it turns into liquid liquid so you technically you can it's not as easy and Annealing, you have to anneal it. It's, it cannot be do like a lamellar annealing, like, oh, let's just bring it to the red and put on an ash. No, you have to anneal it. It takes about like six to 12 hours, depending on the yeah. on the making thing. The, you the key, thing, the, the key thing to do, though, is to get the data sheet of the steel and make sure you yeah. follow the instructions for forging, which will be specified. And and that's that's the key thing. Just fucking read the instructions. I know it's not a manly thing to do, Right, I don't do it often myself, but after you fuck up your first three hundred dollar bar of steel, grab the instructions, have a read, and you might have a better go on your second round. I have a three hundred dollar worth of damaged steel round bar flakes around my power hammer. Yeah, all power to you, mate. All power to you. Yeah, yay! <laughs> Good customers. We need more of you. Place to read the instructions on. Um, um, add-ons like the um, what's that coating that we use, Corin, to to protect our blades oh, if you don't have foil. Fuck! Don't bring that up. <laughs> that was uh, ah, fuck yeah. We use an anti-scale compound instead yeah. of a foil, and um, I you know 
I, we didn't uh, read the instructions. We didn't read Kevin the and I are, are, are heat treating some blades. I mean, they're only Dharma steel. Um, probably, you know, Only small barrel knife components and stuff. That yeah, are we don't spend a day filing. Yeah. And then I stuck yeah. my finger in the stuff yeah. and wiped it all over Kev's blades and put it in the forge. Well, the smart thing was, <laughs> the smart thing was I used Kev blades and not my own as a test piece. <laughs> but in hindsight, it was a bit rude because um, we didn't read the instructions. The stuff didn't. I'm not going to say the stuff didn't work. We didn't follow the instructions, and uh, no. and and it failed. And it failed because we should have learned what we were doing. I, first. I have used that. I have used that product since following the instructions and uh, to the letter and it works really well but when you don't read the instructions don't i just stuck my finger and like, smeared yeah, it across see. the blade i thought fuck should be right yeah How don't, can it be? yeah don't don't fucking cry like i did uh when shit doesn't work because you haven't read the instructions uh, we that's spent, the key thing we spent another what two or three hours redoing everything it's a nightmare oh, it was funny but anyway it was, yeah it, it was, was a funny nightmare. it was funny because it was yeah, yours so but i mean you know it could have yeah. been serious it could have been mine could have been Awesome. <laughs> I've still got to come back up one day and finish that knife. We have to. <laughs> it's only a few months. Um, okay, so that's basically the difference between powder metallurgy and um, and Bessemer steels, and that's the different, basically the two types of production that we will see in general use. And we, and we loosely touched on their applications being that the powdered metallurgy steels being so prohibitively expensive uh, for manufacturing and tooling industries, they don't use them. Cutlery guys like us, yes, we'll use those steels. So most of these powdered metallurgy steels are going to be done for um, cutlery, knives, that sort of thing. You're talking um, a massive the, steel wank because like a 154CM has the same uh, chemistry as CPM 154 or RWL 34. They have the same chemistry, but the powder metallurgy versions are just so much cleaner. And if you look at your edge under a 6 billion times scanning electron microscope, you may be able to see the difference. Otherwise, fuck it. It's just not. Yeah. It's it's an extra 2 or 3% yeah. on that 90% that 1084 is. Mert, sorry, go for it. No, uh, one thing I was going to say is most of those crucible steel, stainless steels contain a lot more carbon than your average stainless steel. Like they're at 1% or some of them even higher. And when you're doing stainless heat treatment, what happens is your carbon gets tied up with your chromium amount. So to be able to get the maximum results, and if you're spending money with the crucible steel, you're going to have to use a cryo. Okay, yeah. so there's no point of buying a RWL, spending $150, $200 on a bar and just treat like if it's 440C and not get most of the benefits. I mean, it'll still make a good blade, but with those crucible steels, I think it's critical to use a liquid nitrogen to get the most out of those stainless steels. Look, I can't agree with you more, Mert. There's nothing stupider than buying a high-end steel and thinking you're going to get the best result out of heat treating it in a gas forge or whatever because it doesn't matter what yeah. steel it is. You have to, to get the best result, You've got to follow the instructions. And the reason the reason for cryo is a little bit different to what you said because cryo, cryo basically super chills the steel and turns more of the osonite into, or retained osonite into martensite. And that's really important on, on, on most stainless steels or high chromium steels. But, you know, at the end of the day, Mert, there's no point spending the money on the high-end steel if you're not going to do a high-end heat treatment. End of story. Yeah, look, I, I was saying, like, if you're heat treating in the kiln, it's better to have a liquid nitrogen. But if you 
if you're just using a nine kilo gas forge, half of the blade sticking out, and without the without the uh, foil, yeah, I would not do that. Okay. It's sort of like it's like buying a sports car and throwing retreads on it and wondering why your fucking car skids around the corner. Yeah. Right. You know, exactly. You, 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 you're buying something that's expensive, premium quality. Treat it like treat it like that. And if you can't do it, get yeah. someone else to do it. Like, there's nothing wrong with That's that. It. So there's, there's avenues out there for getting stuff done the right way. And, you know, you don't have to do every single process yourself to be, you know, qualified as a knife maker. You've just got to make a fucking knife to do that. Yeah. So if you've got to send your stuff off to be heat treated, don't listen to the dickhead around the corner that says, oh, you're, you're fucked because you don't, you don't do your own heat treating. It's like, well, fuck, I'm sending it away, spending 10 bucks a blade, and it's coming back as fucking good as I can get it rather than fucking, you know, quenching in water that you've dropped unicorn tears in and then say you've done it because then it's you're fucking better. It's not the case. If you like us and, you, and you're lucky and you've got the equipment, you've still got to invest the time to learn what you're doing and you've still got to do trial and error and, you, you know, fill the 15-litre fucking doer up with $7 a litre liquid nitrogen to do a batch of blades. And you've still got to measure there's it. An in, you've still got to measure There's an investment it. in there. Like yeah. those little screws that I did, um, you know, I'm heat treating those in a small batch or I actually did them ind individually with a torch. I still measured it because, you know, I'm doing it by eye. I don't know that I've done it unless I can measure it, you know. It's, yeah. You don't know. A file skating is yeah. one thing, but actually measuring the hardness, that's that's where the, that's where the fucking... Yeah, been able, been able to chuck it on a hardness tester and yeah. go, yeah, it's fucking 66 Rockwell. You know, Gamaco will do that for free. If, you're, if you want to check your process... Get a couple of tiles, heat treat them, ship them to Gamaco, mark them to my attention. We'll put them on the hardness tester here and tell you what you got. So, you, you know, you can at least verify that your process is good. Yep, I'll do this. I'll go as fast as say I do the same. Anyone that wants to do that, if they're, you know, if they don't want to send it to you, they want to send it to me. I've got the same yep. uh, Rockwell tester. Done it for other people. And I've got, I've got blocks here that are, you know, been on a several Rockwell testers and I know that they're like 62 and I, I checked the calibration on my Rockwell tester regularly to go, yeah, it's still shard 62. It's doing what it should do. Excellent. Uh, so there's that around it. Um, how are we going on time? We've been chatting for a little bit. Yeah, we're crewed up to an hour there, so. Oh, an hour? Wow. Well, okay. Seemed like more. Seemed like more. Maybe that was the half an Maybe hour away. Maybe that was the 15 minutes Mert. we lost with me and the 15 with Mert. Let's stop yeah. there. Tell yeah, me. Yeah. What just go through so, Ashley's? What's after the so types of he said powdered versus conventional, the applications. Then he's asked us, and this this is where he's asking us our you know, caveat here, personal view, uh, why we would choose one over another. How about I'll how about I just tick up that application one, talk about the difference between the different um, alloy, perhaps some some basic stuff on the different alloying elements, some stuff on what difference carbon makes, and about lathe and plate martensite. And um, and basically save the next bit for next week. Sounds like a fucking good go. All right. Do you want me to Matt, go through this? You got do you any objections? Matt, objections? Overruled. No, I don't have any objections. Go for it. Let's go through it. I'm going to go through it really simply. If you go through the old articles from uh, the original Australian Knife Magazine, um, uh, if you go through the earlier uh, episodes, you'll find this all documented, written down. But basically... Um, let me go through it. So you've got your tectoid oh. steels, right? 
You've got hypoeutectoid and hyperutectoid. Hyper being more than 0.85, hypo being less than. So you've got these two basically different types of, three different types of carbon contents in steel. Um, when we quench, we, we, we take, when we quench, we take the steel from whatever form it's in. It could be perlite, bainite, could be, um, it could have carbides in it, ferrite. Uh, all these different wonderful words I'm not going to go into could have all of these mix of different things. It could be a little bit hard, a little bit soft. We take it and we take it to a point, a heat, where everything is, is null and void and it becomes austenite. Whatever it was, it's now austenite. We take that austenite and if we cool that quickly, we can convert it to martensite. And martensite, sometimes called hardite, is what makes the blade hard. Now, if we don't have enough carbon, it might form martensite, but it'll be so spatchy and sporadic through the piece that it's not going to be it's not going to be hard. Think mild steel. That's you know when you hit a bit of mild steel and your your drill bit blunts and it just doesn't seem to want to cut through a certain bit. Can have a little bit of martensite in that steel, but um, basically what we're talking about in those lower end carbon below 0.75, anywhere above about 0.3, you'll be able to get the steel hard. At 10.45, by the time you get to 0.45% carbon, you can get up to about 55 Rockwell post-quench. So after you temper it, and we'll talk about that in a second, it's going, to be, it's going to be less than that. So we don't normally consider that good for a knife. So we'd say normally over 0.55 is where we want to be to be starting to make a good knife. There's two types of martensite, lathe martensite and plate martensite. If we have a hypo-eutectoid, so less, we normally form lathe martensite. Lathe martensite has a higher ductility, which means that it can be drawn, and it has a higher toughness, and it also has a lower hardness. So if we think something like a leaf spring on a car or a, uh, a plow disc, for example, most of these require high toughness. Anything that requires high, high toughness, like a spring, we will make out of a lower carbon steel that's somewhere in that range between 0.55 and 0.75. This is really good. And so if we're talking applications, this is really good for large knives and chopping knives. And I'm not talking Mert Tanzu kitchen choppers. I'm talking bush machetes, uh, bolos, um, kukris, anything that's designed to do high impact, high load um, uh, work. Zombie killers, don't go there. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, couldn't resist. Um, so then you've got your uh, your eutectoid steels. A eutectoid steel will form a mixture of lathe and another type of martensite called plate martensite. Well, we'll talk about hypo-eutectoid first, which was plate martensite. Hypo-eutectoid steels are above 0.85 and up to 2% carbon. Above 2%, you're into cast irons. It's no good at all. These steels um, require accuracy in holding temperature because if we get too much carbon, what we call in solution, before we quench, then we can cause a whole bunch of problems for ourselves. And we need to actually make sure we quench at the right temperature to ensure that some carbon doesn't go into solution and it forms carbides, which are really good for um, uh, edge and wear retention, actually wet, wet, wear retention. The steel itself will actually form uh, this plate martensite, which is very brittle. And so uh, we 1095 is an example, 52100. These steels 
which are made for wear-resisting applications, but also um, have a high level of hardness. You can mostly these will form um, knives that can have edge chipping issues as well. Is where you start to get into issues with edge chipping, depending on how you temper the steels. Without going into the whole heat treating process, if you don't know what tempering is and so forth, ask a question and we'll we'll get to answering that down the track. Um, basically, anyway, we don't with these steels we can get. Uh, so in the middle is the eutectoid steels. We get lathe and plate martensite. And um, we can temper them to be tough. We can temper them to be hard. We can do all sorts of things with those steels. And like, like um, Kev said, in, if you're looking for a steel that's one size fits all, um, then your 1075, 1084 is excellent. Once we start talking about alloying elements, alloying elements can change the effectiveness of carbon in the, in the, so you don't need as much carbon to still get the same hardness. You can do all sorts of things and it just gets, the world gets into a complicated place. But let's just talk about chromium real quick because chromium uh, basically, um, if you have enough, over 12%, 14%, you're into the realms of stainless steels. And People say, oh, I don't like stainless steel knives. I, hate, I like high carbon steel knives because they're much better. Have never used a proper martensitic stainless steel. Um, a, a proper martensitic stainless steel with very good quality control can be made to hold an edge every bit as good as carbon. Would you agree, Mert? Um, to be honest, in some cases more. Because of the chromium carbides or yep. vanadium carbides, they're going to be a lot more very resistant than your regular uh, cementite. Yeah. But one thing, one misconception is like I don't want to get off the topic, but no, no, this, is, this is the topic, Mert. This is the topic. Yeah. When people look at the when Hardwell, uh, Rockwell hardness became like the uh, dick swinging contest, like the horsepower in the cars. You're looking <laughs> at it of 62 Rockwell damascus steel versus 64 Rockwell 1095. Yeah, 1095 has a big Rockwell. Yeah. No, it's not. 1095. Yeah, it's hard, but an alloy steel with those. Um, for example, niobium or chromium or vanadium, molybdenum, any of those carbides, they are a lot harder than your regular cementite. So they might lose that sharp feeling edge faster as a feeling, but in terms of the holding the edge, they are superior. So when we're talking about carbides, if you're familiar with a, with a diamond cutoff wheel, and you've ever felt one, it's not sharp, right? But it cuts through stone. And the way it does it, it has these very hard pieces of diamond set into a soft steel. Carbides are like that, except that the steel that they're set into is not soft. They're extremely hard. And those carbides basically um, retain the edge and act as like hard marbles in a soft cake, if you like. And so they actually, they actually retain the edge. So very good for edge retention or more specifically wear resistance. Right, Matt? Yes. Hmm. The reason that people like saying, like, oh, I don't like the carbon, I like the carbon stainless is not as sharp. Stainless generally doesn't get as sharp and it loses that scarce sharp feeling right away. But it stays usable sharp a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. Depending, depending on depending. the steel, the yep. edge geometry, and the heat treating process used. They're the three key things. That, that matter. You can use the world's shittest steel, but if you get the edge geometry right and the heat treating on point, you can still end up with a great knife. You can have the best steel, good heat geometry, but fuck up the heat treating, and what do you got, Kev? 
Hey, you gotta bite anchor. <laughs> you got a club. You got a ladder up. You got a club. You got something to squash things with. You got to get those. You three got a garlic things. squasher. Those three things are, are what you got to get on Tomato point. Tomato masher. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Did that sort of answer the question? Do we need to yeah. elaborate on it and get more wanky? I can talk for hours on this subject. I'm not going to no, go out look, there and I, say I'm a fucking expert. I'm not going to say how many textbooks I've read, but I'm going to tell you that I sell this stuff and it's my job to know, and that's that's the, where I'm coming from. That's my my. Well, position. considering considering uh, Gabico uh, Gabico Artisan Supplies are our sponsor, it's nice to know that the guy sitting behind a desk in a room somewhere in your building understands what the fuck's going on. Well, on that subject, stuff selling the shit, though. On that subject, we've talked but about 1084. You know, you're about. No, no, this, we've talked about 1084. I'm going to give a promo code for the next uh, four weeks after this episode goes out. 10% off 1084 using down under 10 as the code. Any of the 1084 products, I'll get that implemented. There you go, Kev. What were you saying? Sorry. <laughs> no, use a different code. Oh. Make sure people are listening. Change the code. Change the, the code. Oh, week. so everyone that just typed down under Let's 10. We're going to go 108410. Yeah, 108410. 108410. There you go. How fucking creative am I? Have you got a, have you got a uh, listener question? I found a steel in my yard. <laughs> I found the steel in my yard. Can I heat treat it? Can I make it in my apartment? <laughs> it looks like a hodgram. Suck it and see, bitch. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good way to wrap up. <laughs> uh, I'm done. All right. Good yeah. to talk to everyone. Good to hear to uh, hear all your, that, that all your was, lovely yeah, voices out episode. there as you um, swear at me. Tune in next week when we can see if Corin plugs his fucking microphone into the right hole and Mert can get his fucking computer running. We're going to press the record button as soon as we fucking sign in for the first phone call. We're going to sign in. We're going to turn the record button on. And you might find yourself with 15 minutes of fucking around while we try and get our shit together to pass off a semi-professional. Actually, let's not even give it that much credit. We'll we'll give you the the life hack version of knife making. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, keep keep the comments coming in and keep some questions coming in. Yeah, and don't forget, good to see. it really helps people find us if you just leave so, a review on your favourite who... site. Get on and leave a review for us. And uh, give us some feedback. If you think we're a bunch of knobs, just like we're we're up for it. You just tell us. Okay. We're all Last good. Time. Have a good you one, just... everyone. Thanks yep. for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. See you all later. See you. Bye. Bye.